Hello, I'm Tor, and I am here to share secrets. Today I'm sharing secrets with Brittany Kaiser, former whistleblower at Cambridge Analytica, and now the co-founder of the Own Your Data Foundation. You might also recognize Brittany from her appearance in The Great Hack, which was an acclaimed Netflix documentary that went into a lot of the details of her whistleblowing on Cambridge Analytica. We're going to talk a lot about that, but mostly we're going to talk about data privacy and data protection more generally, what that means for end users, consumers, and citizens. We're also going to talk about her work on education and collaborating with regulators to create better laws and better protections. We're also going to talk about whether blockchains are really a privacy solution and where they might fit into this question around voting security, which is a critical piece of the democratic process and obviously impacts citizens in every democratic nation. Uh, and we're also finally going to talk about her work at the Own Your Data Foundation, where she works to contribute to a more prosperous and secure digital future through education. I had a lot of fun talking to Brittany because she is so knowledgeable in so many ways about these topics. I can't wait for you all to benefit from her knowledge as well. So without any further introduction, here is Brittany Kaiser. Brittany, thank you so much for agreeing to share some secrets with me. I'm super excited for our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. All right. We're, we're going to start where we always start with this, which is with what, what I think is an easy question, but never is. Uh, who are you? You walk into a dinner party. How are you introducing yourself? You've done a ton. So I, I, I hate to throw this on you initially, but who are you? So I usually describe myself as a data rights activist. Some people have an idea of what that means initially, <laughs> but other people it takes a little bit of explanation. And if I need to go further, what I say is that, uh, you know, a data rights activist is someone that works to secure rights to our personal data that lobbies and works on legislation that works on education and awareness of the privacy and data protection space, and then also actively works to solve the problem by working actively with technologists who are building the different types of platforms who can actually secure our data and privacy. All the laws in the world are great, but you can only actually implement them and enforce them if you have the ethical technology to go along with it. Yeah, it's a point that I often try to make as well. It's like you can try to regulate away a problem, but if you try to ignore the technology uh, that either created or, or the technology that can protect us, you're 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 putting the burden on on somebody with like global legislation. Like it, it can't be the entire solution. People often said that maybe you know the government will save us through antitrust or something, but it doesn't seem to work that way. It does seem to be that you need to be solving the problem holistically. And I would say from my familiarity with your work, you understand better than anyone how all of the different pieces need to be combined in order to attack this problem. Absolutely. To to land the plane for people, I think, um, you know, the, the three different uh, parallel initiatives that work together in order to protect our privacy, protect our data, to give us opportunities to use ethical technology without being overregulated are really education legislation and and ethical technology all advancing together. So on the education front, what I mean is digital literacy for people to actually understand what their data is and basic cybersecurity protocols, to understand media literacy, to spot fake news and disinformation, to protect their mental and physical health when using technology and not uh, become addicted to their devices. There are mm -hmm. so many different facets of that type of education and awareness that are so core to this issue and to solving it sustainably in the long term. And then on the legislative and regulatory front, I spent a lot of time bringing technologists with me to uh, testify in Congress because legislators really need to work in coordination with technologists to make sure that the laws that they're writing are comprehensive so that they actually are enforceable mm -hmm. and to make sure that we don't over-regulate because it's really innovation that's going to solve a lot of our problems and a lot of tech new technology will solve the problems of old technology or unethical technology, right? And so uh, the legislative and regulatory part goes hand in hand with the third initiative, which is to make sure that technology is being built 
that can enforce the law and that can protect people. And that is most likely to be developed uh, faster than new laws and regulations are. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to that last part. And I, I would say that Congress has not proven to be um, necessarily a first mover when it comes to the development of innovation uh, or in grasping innovation. So I appreciate the work that you do to help people, you know, either here in the United States or elsewhere around the globe, helping these legislators come to grips with the technology that it does exist. Because you're right, uh, a lot of what could get legislated otherwise would have the same sort of loopholes uh, that currently exist that allow uh, individuals' data rights to be violated. And, and we need to close those holes while still maintaining the ability for ethical technologists to create the technologies of the future, of a more ethical and, and human-centric future. Absolutely. And I think all of those all of those ideas, all of those concepts and initiatives really support each other. You know, if we have a well-educated, digitally literate population, then it's going to be a lot easier to make laws and get them voted in. And it's going to be a lot easier for those people to use the technologies that enforce those laws. So it all really goes hand in hand. And, and that's why I work on all three simultaneously. Well, we're going to get to talk about your work, uh, especially now with the Own Your Data Foundation, a little bit later on in this podcast. Where I want to begin, though, if, if any of our listeners are primarily familiar with you, they might be recognizing you from the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, which came out last year. And that might have been the first time for many people that they understood how serious the problems with protecting our data had become and really how existentially consequential it had become. So let me in on this a little bit. How did this documentary even come about and what was it like being able to tell your story, which listeners might also not know? Of course. Uh, you know, this was one of the most serendipitous and stressful <laughs> few days of my entire life uh, when this uh, documentary came into my life. And this was the end of March 2018. Uh, on March 23rd, my first whistleblowing interviews had come out in The Guardian. Uh, I had spent many days working with investigators to figure out exactly what evidence I had against Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, the Trump campaign, what were the salient issues that I was able to testify to, and exactly what the narrative needed to be to get people to care. And as soon as this hit the media, I mean, I had spent a few weeks thinking, hey, I've got enough information to write a strongly worded op-ed. <laughs> yeah. which, you know, that's what I thought my impact level was going to be. And when I started showing The Guardian my documents, they said, you know, that we've got something a bit bigger in mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I didn't really expect it to have the, the global impact that it did. Um, you know, within minutes of it coming out, already tens of millions of people around the world had seen it. And... There started to be very serious attention focused on it. So um, about a couple hours after that first package of whistleblowing articles and videos came out with The Guardian, um, I had both the directors of what is now known as The Great Hack, uh, but at the time was just a documentary about data, uh, reach out to me through different channels. And... The first phone call that I got was from Kareem Amer, who's, um, you know, an amazing and famous director of uh, impact documentaries. And he got in touch with me through one of the reporters I had worked with on my whistleblowing interviews. And, uh, you know, I immediately within a few minutes of talking to him, uh, realized how much he knew about the problem that he probably knew a lot more than me at the time um, about the uh, kind of global uh, data situation because he had been working on this documentary since the 2014 Sony hack. And he was trying to show the world what the problem was with the lack of protections around our personal data and had constantly gone from story to story person to person to try to figure out how to show people uh, what the actual issues were and why it mattered. 
And it wasn't until he saw my story that he said, you are finally a character that I am interested in talking Hmm. to where I think your situation could help illustrate to people how easy it is to not realize the gravity of the problem because you got into this, you know, in a, in a very excited and open-minded fashion working on the Obama campaign. uh, And you became a technologist to try to make the world a better place. And you even joined Cambridge Analytica to do that. And then you started to see all of the dark parts of the way this industry works. And so I really want to talk to you. And I said, well, Kareem, you know, I'd love to give you an interview because in my mind, again, this is a lot smaller than what it ended up being. Like I I really, again, I thought I was writing an op-ed. I was going to do one interview for some random documentary uh, that might come out one day. And, uh, And so I said, well, you know, I'm pretty nervous. I've just said that the Trump campaign was conducted illegally. The Brexit campaign was conducted illegally. So I'm going to leave the United States. I'm flying to Thailand. Uh, If you want to meet me there, you can interview me. uh, (laughs) But you're going to have to meet me there because my plane leaves in a couple hours. (laughs) Oh, my uh, gosh. He ended up coming with a film crew and meeting me in Thailand. And again, I thought we might do a couple hours of interviews, a couple days. And uh, nine months later, we were still together (laughs) and uh you know during that time he came with me to every meeting to all the conferences i was speaking at to uh all of my testimonies that i was doing Uh, obviously he couldn't be in the testimony room but accompanying me there and back and uh you know really got in deep to what i was dealing with personally and my kind of crisis of conscience moment, what it means to be someone uh, who thought that technology was a good thing and then realize how easily it can be abused. And so that's, you know, that ended up being the arc of everything. And, you know, I'm just so incredibly grateful to have worked with such incredible uh, artists and filmmakers uh, for that story to have been told in such a global manner. It's incredible that you know even you couldn't grasp just like everybody else exactly how big this actually was but the the emotional response the global response really after the story was told was impressive and honestly it it did make my job a little bit easier as well <laughs> as somebody who often tries to tell people like look this stuff is serious and consequential I think they finally got to wrap their heads around a little bit and maybe it is as he was saying just because there was now this character this real person who kind of lived the arc for themselves and was and was still living it. So now that you've become very much this champion of education around data rights, data intelligence, uh, privacy, and so much else, you probably have come across a lot of the common misconceptions that people still have around data and privacy. They're, they're very challenging to sort of unstick once they've lodged in there. Why do you think education on this topic in particular is so challenging and how are you working still to get around that challenge? Yeah, I I really think one of the biggest issues in uh, getting people to grasp the gravity of the problem is that people don't understand what their data is. Uh, So it's not just they don't understand what a data point or what information about them conceptually is, but because you can't see it and you can't touch it, it doesn't feel important. Right. And it doesn't automatically, uh, you know, work in your own mind that you think, oh, if someone has a piece of information about me, that that something really bad can happen. Um, And it also is not intuitive that this information about you that you are producing exponentially more of every single day is the most valuable asset in the world. You know, personal data is the world's most valuable market. Multi-trillions of dollars are bought and sold and traded around the world every single day, mostly without the consent of the individuals that are producers of this asset class. So we are now in a historic situation where, just like if you look in the past, where natural resources have been exploited from vulnerable populations, 
and eventually that gets made right where the local people or the the original landowners get compensation for the production of that asset this is the revolutionary moment that we're in right now where we as the producers of the world's most valuable asset class are finally starting to get rights to that and i'm not just fighting for rights for transparency and consent i'm fighting for rights to the value of that data because mm. that is the most important part in the end it's all great that you can protect your privacy but what if you could make enough money at least to feed yourself and your family every day because you now have rights to a dividend of the monetization of your own personal assets yeah that's such a challenging well, it's not hard to wrap your head around like why that would be valuable the way i've explained it on other podcasts is kind of like you look at the value of data and i'm a i guess i was an economics major which is a nice way of saying like i studied a bunch of stuff that doesn't seem relevant in the real world <laughs> uh, but at least the terms still hold here right around consumer and producer surplus and all of the surplus mm -hmm. value of this data accruing to the platforms and none of it accruing to the consumer because it's it's generated at, at zero cost effectively it's it's ambiently produced in in your day-to-day -day or in your interactions with these platforms and mm -hmm. because there is no i mean it also ties in with the idea of identity which is another con complicated topic in its own right so part of this is just it's genuinely hard as a problem part of it is also it's just generally hard to communicate uh what do you think about uh specifically identity in all of this i mean maybe this is a very uh high level question but what what is somebody's identity really like what what when you say ownership of your data who who are you in this can we can we say that we have one consistent identity that exists across all digital and in-person platforms or how do you personally think about it yeah absolutely i i um Funnily enough, I, I sit on the um, Wyoming's Congressional Subcommittee on Personal Data Definitions, and mm -hmm. on November 2nd, we just had this massive uh, debate because we're about to pass a bill on the definition of digital identity and allowing digital identity to be a legally acceptable way um, for individuals to do business or interact with government in the state of Wyoming. Hmm. Uh, so this has been an ongoing working group for a couple of years. And, um, you know, there, there are some basics to digital identity that are very important, which is that there are identifying characteristics or identifying uh, data points that allow you to verify that you are who you say you are and that it is unlikely that anyone else would be able to replicate that. So you, through a complex combination of data points, whether that be uh, demographic, geographic, biometric, whatever that happens to be, because there's a lot of different ways to look at that problem, mm -hmm. um, that this combination of data uh, verifies that you are you. And being able to protect those data points so that you don't need to share that data with anyone and use instead an external public key or a password of sorts that would allow any organization, be it commercial or governmental or even peer-to-peer, -peer, another person to verify that you are who you say you are mm -hmm. without getting access to any of that personal data um, is really the... Um, is really the the golden ideal. Like that's what that's what we're trying to do. And that digital identity um, can be linked to every single digital platform that you use, to every single organization or company you interact with. Mm -hmm. So that all of the data sets that you are creating, be it you know commercial, behavioral, what have you, all of that data is intrinsically linked back to your uh, public key or some sort of unique identifier uh, that is your digital identity, but not linked to your personally identifiable information. And that protects your privacy, that protects anyone else from being able to replicate that data to pretend they are you. And it allows you to actually have trackable and traceable uh, data production. And therefore you can claim ownership or be able to uh, verify permission structures for the use cases 
of the data that you're producing. And most importantly, to be able to claim the value of the data sets that are being monetized, that are linked back to your digital identity. What a fascinating conversation. And it's so refreshing to talk to somebody who's like talking to regulators and they're driving the conversation around this. You know, mm -hmm. I, it's happening at the state level, which is still so much better than many other levels we could be considering this. It's really exciting specifically to see the innovation in Wyoming on so many levels when, when it relates to this stuff. Um, but again, it's just really refreshing to hear that it, it's being tackled in governments where governments have historically been the arbiters of identity. They collect taxes, you know, so on. And uh, it, to me, they, they have to be a part of the conversation. There's a lot of identity solutions being developed right now, mm -hmm. decentralized or otherwise, where they don't seem to have involved governments in the conversation because it's sort of a pure technologist effort. And it mm -hmm. feels like those are pretty doomed to fail. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. Uh, the relationship between uh, those who govern and legislate and those who build the technology needs to be intimate. It needs to be inextricably linked. It needs to be um, a transparent and co-working relationship. And that's what I've really uh, been working to do over the past uh, two and a half years since becoming a whistleblower is that I came out to say, you know, like, I'm a human rights lawyer by training. Uh, and I am a uh, technologist through engagement and kind of on-the-job learning, right? Uh, that's mm -hmm. not what I studied. I've got four law degrees. So uh, <laughs> my, my, um, you know, my background is in, you know, legislative drafting and lobbying, but in practice, I've worked in uh, technology and political technology and privacy technology. And so I, I really see these things as, um, as uh, you know, two different sectors that need to work together in order for our future to actually be protected and in order for laws to be enforceable and in order for uh, technology innovation to not be squashed. And so I drag technologists with me to testify in Congress all the time, as I mentioned earlier, because uh, it, it's a really a beautiful thing when a legislator that doesn't understand how a certain technology works uh, gets that explanation and gets the opportunity to ask all those questions. And then the light bulb turns on and they actually understand what they're writing laws about. And then those laws are a lot more comprehensive mm -hmm. and they're a lot less prohibitive to innovation. And so uh, I, I think for too long, technologists have been afraid of engaging with legislators, thinking that they're automatically going to overregulate. And for too long, legislators have been afraid of technology and the speed at which it is built and moves. And so that um, curing uh, that uh, bad air and making sure that those misconceptions are solved has definitely been one of the most important parts of my work and the most rewarding. I mean, it's been so amazing to be able to teach legislators about technology and to even bring people who are a lot more technical than me and have them work intimately with legislators and regulators to make sure that we're actually doing the right thing to protect people. Well, since we're talking about technologists and technology, let's talk about specifically blockchain. Because uh, what is the role of blockchain in all of this? I, I know that you are, are very familiar with the technology. A lot of our listeners are more familiar with blockchain than they probably are uh, legislation for example. Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. But one thing that always annoys me as, as somebody who is working very actively on a privacy focused blockchain, like a, a blockchain mm -hmm. that actually like very uniquely provides privacy solutions as part of its like default offering. Uh, I get very annoyed when blockchains are described as a privacy solution. You, you've said mm -hmm. the word verifiable a few times now, which is exactly what blockchains are designed for. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think that they are accurately described in themselves as a privacy solution because because they're designed to be transparent, verifiable, auditable, it, it kind of makes them very bad at protecting data by default. Uh, but we agree, I think, that decentralization, permissionlessness, all of that aspect does need to be a foundational piece of any of the products that we're describing here for you know protecting user data, uh, protecting the, the privacy of that data, allowing it to be shared securely with mm -hmm. whom and how. So exactly. where does blockchain plug in in all of this? So there, there's a lot of different 
pieces of the puzzle. And I think it might be important for me to go through what um, kind of the overarching concepts of privacy are and, and therefore what are the different types of, you know, uh, blockchain technology solutions that are that are solving those different areas. And so I really see data um, data privacy or I prefer to say data protection because I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of sharing data securely as opposed to keeping everything private. Right. <laughs> but uh, in data protection, first of all, we're talking about transparency, like knowing what data is being collected about us um, and by whom and for what purposes. And so what, that transparency is obviously integral to blockchain, having an understanding of who you're interacting with, having trustless systems or reputational systems that are allowing us to comfortably choose who we are interacting with and why and for what purposes. And then the second concept after transparency is really those uh, consent and permission structures. So if you decide to give your data to a certain organization or individual, um, and that you want to know what is going to be collected about you, what it is going to be used for, who it's going to be used by, for how long they want to use it. And so that's, that's essentially the type of information that you give someone on Airbnb when you, when you want to use their property, when you want to use their house. Um, if someone wants to use your property, that's the information that you are given before you agree on a price and, and you hand away the keys. So that next piece is the monetization of data, uh, which once you have decided what you are comfortable with your data being uh, shared for and with whom and for what, uh, then you can talk about how much that is going to be monetized for and therefore you know, what your piece of that pie is. And you agree on that before you hand away the keys. And instead of handing away physical keys, obviously you are giving them the keys to access your data. Um, and I think a lot of there are a lot of important pieces of this. You know, we talked briefly about digital identity. So saying you are who you say you are, and therefore that this data belongs to you, mm -hmm. is an important point. And I think um, there are probably more digital identity projects that come out of the blockchain space than any other uh, sector of mm -hmm. technology, right? And so that's incredibly important, the digital identity piece. Then the transparency, actually making sure that things are trackable and traceable. So if you are going to transparently agree to certain permissions, you can tell where your data is going. You, you know where your data is going and where it's not going because most of the time it's going to be on a, on a public ledger if we're talking about a lot of the systems that are openly being used right now, obviously on a pro private blockchain, that's a different conversation. But still, the, the concept is that no matter what, you have uh, trackable, um, trackable and traceable transactions. So if you are sharing your data with a specific person, you know that that transaction has gone through, you know who it's gone to, and you have verified that you are that person and that you have handed away that data. And then in the permission structure part, that's where smart contracting comes in. Smart contracting is going to solve so many of the problems that we have in the data industry right now, which is that not only do we not know where our data is going to whom or for what, and so it's rife for abuse because we haven't consented to anything um, in the United States of America right now. We are pre-opted in and anyone can do whatever they want all over the world with personal data of Americans, um, which is one of the biggest disasters. Uh, Using smart contracting technology, we'd be able to say, you can have my data for this amount of, you all have access to it for this amount of time for these purposes. And ideally, the smart contract would be um, comprehensive enough that it would not allow the person that you are sharing data with to use your data for other purposes or mm -hmm. to keep your data for longer than you have agreed to it being used for. You're, right? you're you're gonna really love this next term I'm gonna throw at you then. <laughs> so Perfect. we we've sort of coined this term with secret network uh, because we we've seen the progression of Bitcoin as you know a store of of value and then we've seen Ethereum and other smart contracting platforms as becoming like programmable value through smart contracts. So mm -hmm. the the term we've sort of coined for secret network is programmable privacy.
the mm -hmm. idea that the next iteration of smart contracting like this is not just a programmable value transfer, but programmable transfer of any data and having arbitrarily complex data privacy controls embedded in the code of that contract for how that data is shared, how it is consumed, and with whom, uh, you know, generating specific viewing keys and the like. So as a term, it seems to be catching on. And I think it's because people are beginning to understand smart contracts and this idea of programmability and automating so much of our legal systems or business systems that, that are kind of choked by middlemen. Um, but they also see the dangers of over-technologization, which is the way that our data has been exploited. So if you can have programmability and verifiability and correctness at the same time that you have data protection, Mm -hmm. It feels to me like we're both sort of describing the Holy Grail. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what, the, what the real Holy Grail is, is to have all of those pieces of the puzzle um, working well so that when you get to the data monetization piece, it is, it is very obvious what data you own. It is very obvious what, um, even if there's fractionalized ownership, Mm -hmm. what percentage of value you are supposed to get mm -hmm. and that you will be automatically paid whenever your data is monetized. And again, in the blockchain space, there's a lot of exciting projects in data monetization and personal data marketplaces that even help you monetize your data. And what the real holy grail really is, is that everyone in the world can have a universal earned income where you're getting paid on your phone for all the data that's just being stolen from you right now. And you have enough of that value given the different ways to monetize your data, the different ways to increase the value of your data with modeling, uh, that uh, this will solve extreme poverty. And it's the only real opportunity on the table for us to solve extreme poverty with technology. Yeah, you've jumped straight to the end game, right? Which is I've described a few cool technical buzzwords and you've driven the conversation back to, okay, but how is this benefiting the end user, the consumer, where we don't want them fiddling with a bunch of privacy settings in their phone all day. What we want is a system that works for them by default where mm -hmm. it's not on the consumer to create this value for themselves. We've constructed global systems where by design, it's human first, it's user first, and ultimately, if if corporations or governments end up benefiting as, as a byproduct of this increased human empowerment, that's great. They can reinvest those gains in empowering humans in other ways. But it, it does seem to me, and I'm sure to you as well, that the current system is a little bit backwards. I mean, the current system is kleptocratic, as opposed to actually thinking about individual rights and how do we help protect and empower people. So it, it's thinking about empowering, you know, uh, power structures as opposed to individuals. And I think right now we're really moving towards individualism in terms of the way the world works and in terms of becoming a more global society that we need to be able to protect our own rights without relation to borders, without relation to governments. Um, especially when a lot of commercial actors are more powerful than governments, which has definitely been proven uh, with the fights between Google, Facebook, and governments across the world. Um, so individuals need to be able to protect themselves from bad actors, whether they're companies or governments, or even if those companies or governments are not bad actors, um, they just haven't progressed fast enough or don't have the willingness to make the investment to protect people. So therefore we need to be able to do that ourselves. And I, I really love the point that you made, which is that this is a system that can, that will be beneficial for commercial companies and governments. And there's a few reasons why. Um, but number one, incentive structures. If you put the incentive structures in place where individuals benefit from sharing their data, guess what? We're not going to have the next mass shooting. We're not going to have the next terrorist attack. We're not going to have the next car accident because we're going to be sharing massive amounts of data with smart cities, with government agencies that are helping protect us against that. We're, we're going to much more quickly cure cancer and diabetes and other diseases and be able to stop pandemics like COVID-19 because we are all comfortable that our data is protected, that it won't be abused, and that if we are sharing it, 
we are going to benefit in any monetization or we could positively, uh, positively give our data for impact in society. Um, you know, and I, I think the best way to ground this is to say that uh, one of the biggest problems in the medical field is that uh, medicines don't work as well on women and minorities as young white men because all of the medical data, the majority of the medical data, comes from medical trials that young white men do in college for beer money. Hmm. And so if you have 18 to 35-year-old young white males as the majority of the data set, that's how medicines are being created by pharma companies. That right? reminds me of all of like the takeaways from the psychological studies that they used to do where we took this as gospel about how the human mind works until everybody realized that it had only been conducted on Harvard undergrads between 1950 and 1970. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, there's, there's some flaws with that approach. I think we can both agree. Um, one thing I really have to ask you about, though, uh, before we run out of time, because mm -hmm. uh, I, I, there's so much that I would love to talk about. Uh, one thing, of course, that's very topical for today, we'll see if it's by the time this podcast comes out, we'll see if we're still debating the results of the election in the United, <laughs> in the United States. Uh, but a topic that talks on, you know, touches on the politics, touches on identity, touches on technology uh, would be the use of technologies like blockchain to help secure or facilitate voting. And this is a very sensitive topic. There's a lot of disagreement on whether it is a good or bad technology. Uh, part of my perspective is informed by the idea that blockchain itself is not a privacy technology. But as we're saying, it fits into this larger system that is supposed to be more human-centric. And, and what could be more human-centric than discussing something inherent to democratic systems like voting? So what is your opinion on the use of blockchain and related technologies in voting? So uh, there, there are a few different ways to look at this. And again, like data privacy, I'll talk about um, what you need in order to vote and therefore what blockchain technologies could solve within that equation. Um, number one is digital identity, of course, uh, which is to be able to prove you are who you say you are without having a piece of paper, or a piece of plastic with you. Mm. Um, most states in the United States require some sort of identification on election day. So if your wallet has recently been stolen and during COVID-19 you can't go to the DMV, then all of a sudden you might not be able to vote. And that's a really big problem, that we need a piece of plastic with us to, to prove we are who we say we are. That We're way past that. We have 21st century technology that we can use. Mm -hmm. And I think digital identity is a huge part of making sure that, yes, it's important to verify people's identity, but asking for a physical piece of paper or plastic is completely insane at this point uh, in order for people to verify their identity when we're talking about government databases that definitely know who we are. Um, yeah. so, you know, we, we don't need that little card to say who we are. They have access to the information to verify our, our information. Right. And so that's number one. Uh, number two is in placing the vote. So I'm an expert in political data, of course. And the truth is, is that, uh, you know, no one's ever supposed to know who you voted for but it is basically public information that you voted mm -hmm. and when and where you voted mm -hmm. and in many states what party you voted for um, or if you are a registered independent or unaffiliated, right? Right. Uh, and so that information is already basically public. You can get it uh, for free from the Secretary of State. You can buy it from companies like Labels and Lists, L2. Um, Axiom, like it, there are big data vendors that allow you to get that. You can also get it for free from the RNC Data Trust if you're working for a Republican or NGP Van if you're working with a Democrat. Like this data is there and available. So be able, so to be able to verify that your vote has definitely um, counted, that it has gone through, that it is uh, now a legitimate data point that you have voted. Um, is, is the next step after you have declared your identity. So there are many different solutions to how to keep the information of who you voted for private, but make sure that there is a public record of the fact that you voted and where you voted and when you voted 
um, which also helps fight against voter fraud. So that's very important. And then when you look at the other side, voter tabulation, um, you know, my, my friend Nick Spanos, who's obviously very well known in the blockchain space, he has the first patent on blockchain voting, and it specifically has to do with voting tabulation in voting machines, right? So how do we record on a blockchain what has been, um, what votes have been made and be able to put that into a public tabulation system? And so that that's some really interesting technology. And I think um, blockchain and smart contracting has a lot of work to do there, right? Um, and so basically from, from digital identity to tracking and traceability um, to permission structures of the public or privateness of that data, and then the voting tabulation, uh, all of that, I mean, it's similar to the data privacy conversation, right, <laughs> of the problems that this is solving and why. And uh, I, I really don't think that there's an argument anymore like it completely blows my mind that we're using pieces of paper in 2020 during a pandemic. Um, it blows my mind that we trust the global financial system and our stock markets and our bank accounts with technology, but somehow we can't vote using technology, mm. which is a lot less consequential in a way to our daily lives, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it is interesting. And then I guess if you... I, what part of what it comes back to, I guess, and this comes up in the blockchain space, is where's the undo button? You know, in, in a lot of ways, there there are some things in the financial system that can be undone. You know, if the bank makes an error in a transaction and it's reversible in a way that really isn't with Bitcoin, for example, you know, your vote could be sort of similar. Like once a vote is cast, if if somehow that's gone wrong and, and a certain party claims victory where it hadn't been deserved or there was a corruption in some point in the process, like the integrity of an election is one of those things that once you pass a certain threshold and you can't go back from it, it can have like very serious consequences for the citizens in those countries. And, and maybe it's that aspect of reversibility that, that still needs to be figured out in a larger sense across the decentralization space. Well, um, the law is that once you've cast a vote, it cannot be changed or altered. So uh, there's no going back once you have cast a vote. So that's just the reality of how the system already works. Um, you can't take it back. Uh, there are a handful of states that let you recast a vote after you have voted. So if data needs to be updated in the system, then yeah, maybe those states shouldn't start using blockchain yet. But most states, I think... Like nearly every state, there's only a couple states that allow you to recast a vote. Um, most yeah, states, that, it was it was really it's a only end all. yeah, it was right? really only a response to thinking about like why do we trust our financial system with some of these things? It's like well, right. maybe we trust the financial system because we know that like we can probably get our money bank if Bank of America sends it to the wrong place. If we use that same technical start, like if, if for some reason people trust a technology they don't really understand to record their vote, they think somehow if there's something wrong with this technology, like. You know, they can still trust marks on a page just because we've dealt with it for centuries or millennia. You know, people really need to trust blockchain. Maybe this does come back to more of the education aspect that we touched on earlier. You know, how, how much of this is really just like the technology isn't ready and how much of it is just like people aren't ready to trust it? Yeah, I think it's a lack of education uh, because we trust technology with every other part of our lives. Every other part. So, like, why are we using pieces of paper to vote? It's completely insane. The only real reason why people would use pieces of paper to vote is because they want to manipulate the results. You can manipulate pieces of paper. You can't manipulate a blockchain. So it's people who are fighting against transparency and the legitimacy of our electoral system uh, that don't want to use blockchain. Well, I... I... Without making any commentary on the current state of our election system here in the United States, I, I think that this does take us in a nice full circle back to what it is that you do all day now uh, and your work with the Own Your Data Foundation, which is concentrated on closing this gap on education so that collectively we can begin to understand, trust, and implement these technologies that would seem to be superior to paper at least on paper. So talk a little bit about the Own Your Data Foundation, your role in it, uh, and the kind of work that it's doing right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I co-founded the Own Your Data Foundation last summer in order to uh, begin teaching digital literacy classes. And what I mean by digital literacy uh, is that I teach a curriculum that is called DQ uh, for digital intelligence quotient, like IQ or EQ. Mm -hmm. this, is, uh, this is an indicator set that has been developed over the past 10 years by a lot of the world's top uh, technology think tanks and advocacy groups, uh, universities that concentrate in technology, uh, government departments and ministries of technology and innovation. And this, uh, a couple months ago, became an IEEE global standard. So in order to get a DQ score, uh, you take a test um, uh, and you get your DQ score, but unlike uh, IQ, more like EQ, you can do things to improve it, hmm. right? And uh, in, it gives you a full test on how much you understand about your data rights or what your data rights could be or should be. Uh, how much do you understand about basic cybersecurity protocols? Um, and that feeds into obviously media literacy. So to spot uh, hacking or phishing attempts. Uh, to to understand what fake news and disinformation is, uh, to stop cyberbullying, and how do you use emotional intelligence when you're interacting with other people online? Uh, this is very helpful, especially for young people. Uh, it also issues with technology addiction. How do you have a healthy relationship with technology and actually have uh, a prosperous digital life as opposed to being addicted to devices that cause mental and physical health problems. And so there's, there's a, a whole range of, of indicators and then a curriculum that goes along with each of those indicator sets to help you improve your understanding of each of those issues in practicality. And this is, uh, you know, we, we've kind of been teaching in, uh, you know, one by one, we're about to release uh, a virtual lecture series and online Q&A so that people from all over the world can learn with us online. And since most schools haven't opened back up, I was supposed to be teaching in schools, uh, actually starting with our, um, our co-alma mater of Phillips Academy Andover. Oh, I was supposed my. to do the, my, my first DQ session uh, in March of this year, my first comprehensive working group on it uh, with the high school students. Uh, but that was the first thing that got canceled in March for me besides uh, Mobile World Congress. <laughs> uh, what a shame. What an opportunity. Yeah. Oh, God, I know. And so um, now we are, yeah, we've developed these online classes, which will be released in a couple of weeks in time for the holidays. And I'm hoping uh, that we can start really uh, amping up the amount of people that we're reaching, because right now it's one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and soon, you know, millions of people, if they want to, could be taking these classes all at the same time. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, we are a partner of the DQ Institute, which spent the past 10 years uh, developing this. And so we're one of their partners to help proliferate this type of education, especially in the United States, and to help develop new programs for early childhood and professional programming, because, uh, you know, you're... Uh, your weakest link in cybersecurity for a company is your staff member that can't spot a hacking or phishing attempt. Mm -hmm. And uh, for kids, we have a real opportunity that our children won't have the bad habits that we do and will actually care about their privacy, understand data, understand how to have a healthy relationship with technology. And therefore, over time, we will be able to sustainably uh, fix a lot of the problems that we have with technology today. It's a really inspiring mission. I am so bummed that you're not getting the in-person opportunities now because even though, like we said, like there is so much promise in groundbreaking technology, I think that there's uh, a lot of work still to be done on remote learning uh, to make it equivalent to the in-person experience. I do hope you get that opportunity uh, in the coming year at the very least uh, because it's really been a pleasure to get to talk with you now, hear, hear from you personally, uh, get educated myself on a lot of topics that I wish I knew more about, especially when it concerns voting, regulation, and the like. Not my area of expertise, but on the technology side, we're, we're doing our best to, to try to keep up with the, with the rapid progress that you've been able to make, both inside the foundation and outside, 
is there anywhere that listeners should go right now after having listened to this where they can learn more about the foundation, connect with you personally, or just follow you more generally? Is there another documentary they should be looking out for? What's going on? (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm going to give a big shout out to my friends at The Social Dilemma. Uh, Definitely, if you haven't seen The Great Hack, watch that first, and then watch The Social Dilemma if you haven't seen that. Um, Both of them are so important in describing the different facets of the problem and a lot of the people behind both of these films are some of the biggest activists in, in privacy and data protection. So it's great to hear directly from them and their experiences, especially those that, that worked for unethical technology companies and came out of the other end to become an activist. And uh, to follow me more generally, you can check me out on Twitter at ownyourdatanow, um, on Instagram at own.your.data. Everything else is at ownyourdata um, for every other platform. And, uh, you know, I would love for you to check out my website, which is ownyourdata.foundation. And uh, we've got a lot of activities coming up. Um, I'd love for any of you guys, especially those of you that are parents, uh, to check out our our new programs for parents and teachers and kids uh, that are coming out in a couple weeks. So really look forward to, to that happening. And, of course, like definitely... Just, uh, you know, feel free to keep in touch. You can write to me at info at ownyourdata.foundation, and I can keep you updated on new legislative initiatives with um, privacy, data protection, and blockchain technology regulation. I'm very involved in that. And any other, uh, you know, campaigns or activism associated with furthering any of these ideals. Amazing. Uh, Everybody who just heard that, please do one of those things. Brittany, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to have this conversation. Best of luck with all your work. I cannot wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. A pleasure to uh, you know, have such a complex conversation with someone that is in the industry helping to build the solutions to these problems. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you choose to share it. I also hope that you choose to check out Secret Network and what we're building. You can find us on Twitter at Secret Network, our homepage scrt.network. You can join our official chat at chat.scrt.network where you can connect with our global community of privacy advocates and passionate community members who help contribute to open source privacy first technologies. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you join us again for the next time we share secrets.